Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. That is correct. (laughs) Hey, Tim, this interview, uh, or I guess this week, is pretty timely. Last Mm -hmm. weekend, I was at my little boy's footy Mm wind-up, and I was talking with a mate who's who's got teenage kids, and we were talking about screen addiction Mm -hmm. and the, the unprecedented nature of this and how we were pretty clueless. And the conversation came to, to two really interesting uh, forms of information on this topic. One is the current Netflix series or show, uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. And the other that we both cited is a book called Teen Brain. Mm-hmm. Now, we're lucky enough to have the author of Teen Brain on our show this week, David Gillespie. We're going to talk with David about um, a, a range of things, but focused on this idea of what's going on inside a teenager's mind, and in particular, why that makes them so susceptible to addictive behaviours Um, and how uh, the tech industry has capitalised on that in a number of different ways. Exactly, and why your little babies can't be too young to have some basic rules. And there's some interesting correlations and comparisons across into Steve Bidolf's work. We'll also talk about the Rite of Passage, which we've done a previous episode on with Rick Pedley-Smith. Exactly. Now, David uh, describes himself as a recovering corporate lawyer. Mm-hmm. He got into this authoring game. He's now the, the author of some 10 or 11 books. Um, he got into the authoring game when he noticed that he was 40 kilos overweight despite um, eating a low-fat diet. And he, he started off writing about um, Sugar, Sweet Poison was his first book, uh, which has led to a number of other really interesting books on related health topics, and then into this, um, or via a detour on um, how to tame toxic people, so a book about dealing with psychopaths, and then into this very important topic of dealing with, or understanding and dealing with the teen brain. And you will hopefully draw the conclusion on the relationship between sugar and screens, and there is one. Hmm, very addictive substances. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am here, as always, standing next to... Tim Curtis, how are you? Opposite, actually. G'day, Ben. <laughs> G'day, Tim. And we're very privileged to be joined on the line by David Gillespie. David, how are you? Good. How are you? Very well. Now, we are super keen to get inside the brains of teenagers. Um, both Tim and I have got teen and preteen kids, and we are hopeless, I think is not too strong a word in terms of understanding what's going on there. So we'd be really keen to, to talk a little bit about teen brain. But before we do, and in fact, I, I should mention that my eight-year-old uh, has been seeing this on my, my bedside table, and, and he thought it was Teen Brian, a book <laughs> about a teenager named Brian. So maybe we could cover that as well to, to satisfy him. But before we talk about uh, the, the brains of teenagers, um, it'd be great just to get a bit of background on yourself. Your website discovers, uh, dis- 
describes you as a, a recovering corporate lawyer. But yeah. how did you get to, to being the, the author of these sort of topics, David? Uh, okay, so Team Brain is, I think, my 10th or 11th non-fiction book. Um, the first one I wrote uh, was about why we shouldn't be eating sugar, which was a book called Sweet Poison, and it came out in 2008. Um, it, it was a result of me being 40 kilos heavier than I am now um, and not being able to understand how I got there or how to get back from there. Uh, and what I decided to do was have a look at what the science was telling us about um, the way our biochemistry worked and the way our diet worked and the way our bodies worked. Um, now, I was spectacularly unqualified to do any such thing. Uh, I, was a, uh, I was trained as a lawyer uh, and I still am a lawyer and still practice as one, um, uh, although a slightly different type of work. And um, I, at the time, was uh, involved in a tech startup, so I wasn't even doing lawyering. Uh, <laughs> so, as I said, spectacularly unqualified to do it. Um, one thing, I guess, that I brought to the table was that lawyers, I guess, rather like journalists, um, are trained that they are not entitled to an opinion of their own, in, in the sense that everything we say has to have a little footnote after it explaining where we got that evidence from. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it gives you a training in finding evidence uh, and being able to justify every point you discover. Um, so anyway, uh, long story short, I couldn't figure out why, um, not just me, but everybody um, in my generation and, and, and everybody else was suddenly in the last 40 or 50 years um, getting fat. It wasn't something that had plagued humans before that. Something had occurred in the last few decades that had made us all get fatter and fatter and fatter, uh, me particularly. Um, and I thought, I don't buy the explanation that we were being given, which is that uh, fat makes us fat, uh, which the fat. science seems to suggest is about as true as eating cucumbers makes you green. Uh, and... The other thing was that the explanation is to sure, but why is that suddenly the case? The explanation seemed to run to, well, it's been a mass failure of willpower. Suddenly we have no longer have the ability to control how much we need to eat. Now, I didn't buy that either. Um, I, I thought usually when things like this occur, it's an environmental failure. There's something in the environment which is causing everybody to head in a certain direction. So I went looking. I, I said, surely we must know this. This isn't a hard problem. You know, people have been looking at it for decades. There must be, must be some good evidence on this. And what I found was that there was good evidence, um, but it was being systematically kept out of public view um, uh, for reasons which we probably don't have time to go into in this podcast, but uh, which the result of which was... Um, that we were being told exactly the wrong thing. We were being told uh, to avoid fat uh, and that sugar was perfectly okay. Uh, it had me believing that when I purchased a bag of 99% fat-free marshmallows from the supermarket, I was actually virtually eating health food. Um, and the science that had been available since the 50s and 60s said, in fact, that was nonsense. The way to make animals fat, uh, including humans, is to feed them sugar because of a particular way that sugars are metabolised. Um, when I discovered that and satisfied myself that the evidence on it was very, very good, I thought, well, you know what? 
let's do an experiment. Let's see is if what I'm seeing is true, if I delete sugar, I should lose weight. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is going to be real easy because I don't add sugar to my tea or my coffee. I don't put it on my breakfast cereal. Uh, therefore, this will be easy to do. And then I started reading the labels uh, of the foods in my cupboard. I discovered that Sultana brand was 25% sugar. I discovered that Nutrigrain was you know, closer to 30% sugar. I discovered that yogurt was full of sugar, uh, had more sugar than the ice cream in my freezer. Hmm. Uh, I discovered that all of the things that had Heart Foundation ticks on them invariably had large amounts of sugar in them. Uh, and so I had to reassess um, what I was eating. I did do that. I figured out um, how to avoid sugar. I did it and I lost weight at the rate of about a kilo a week for the next 40 or 50 weeks. Um, got to the weight I am now and stayed there from then until now. All this happened about uh, 16 years ago. Uh, so I had come across science that said, delete sugar and you'll be fine. I implemented it. It worked. I wrote a book about it. Um, that book, Sweet Poison, sold very, very well indeed, eventually. Uh, and essentially, it gave me license to write about other things I found interesting. I've written books about um, the Australian school system, uh, how not to work for psychopaths, um, and the one that we're here to talk about today, which is uh, managing teenagers. Now, in all of, in amongst all of this, uh, my wife and I had six kids, uh, and uh, so we have a bit of on-the-ground experience mm -hmm. with teenagers because they are all now teenagers. Well, some of them have actually ended teendom and ended twentydom. Um, but uh, I wanted to understand some very particular things about the way teenagers behaved and their biochemistry and how it affected how they behaved and their responses to things. Um, so that's what that book's about. And you mentioned right at the start that lawyers and journalists are not entitled to an opinion, but it certainly yes. seems that teenagers feel they definitely are. Um, I'm experiencing <laughs> that at home, and no doubt most of our readers who have, who have ever met a teenage child would, would sympathise with that. Could you tell us, as a, as a bit of a preface to this discussion, what is going on in a teenager's brain? Your book um, does, I think, a wonderful job of making some of the neurochemistry and the, the sort of science very accessible, and in particular, some of the sort of reward pathways. We have got an AFL final about to be played at the Gabba, but I understand there's a different kind of Gabba at play in, inside a yep. teenager's brain. It'd be great just to get some of the, the chemistry uh, as a preface for our conversation. Sure. Okay. So uh, I guess the place to start is that teenagers' brains are not the same as either children's brains or adults' brains. There's a phase from the beginning of puberty until about 10 years later. So for most people, from about 12 to about 22, when their brain is undergoing a fairly substantial reconstructive phase, um, it's where the last uh, mo most recently evolved part of the brain is being built called the prefrontal cortex. Now that bit of our brain is responsible for a lot of what makes us human. It, it manages our relationships with other humans. It gives us adult levels of self-control, uh, impulse control, um, ability to think in the shoes of others um, and adjust our behavior accordingly, etc. So it's a fairly important bit of brain that's being built at that point. Um, in order for that to occur, we have to enter puberty. Uh, in order for us to enter puberty, we have to turn off a braking system that stops us entering puberty immediately after birth. So uh, we could, um, if biochemistry were left to its own devices, enter puberty immediately after birth. Um, 
that doesn't happen uh, because there's a braking system called GABA, the one you mentioned, um, that suppresses the release of the hormones that would make it happen until uh, the body, the hardware, is physically capable of undertaking that bit because it's not just the brain that's being built during puberty. Um, once the body's ready for it, the brain takes off the brakes, to dials down the GABA, uh, and all the hormones required to initiate puberty are released. The problem is that, like most things in the human body, uh, when we find something that's good at something, like suppressing stuff, we use it for all kinds of things, and that's what happens with GABA. So GABA uh, suppresses not just the hormones that, that uh, allow us to enter puberty, it also plays a role in our reward system, in that when we find something rewarding, we get a little spike of, uh, of a hormone called dopamine, which makes it puts us on edge, makes us anxious, makes us ready to receive the reward, makes us think quicker, makes our muscles work faster, makes us in better at chasing and receiving rewards. Um, and GABA is the thing that turns it off once we get the reward. So it turns us from anxious about getting a reward into chill and happy that we have received the reward. That suppressing effect of GABA, when it's dialed down during puberty, stops doing that and makes us much more prone to addiction because addiction is the result of too much dopamine too many rewards received too quickly and without the dopamine being turned down by the GABA. So that's all really complicated and probably better with a picture in front of you. But hmm. in essence, reward works this way. See something we want, dopamine squirts up, get the thing we want, GABA shuts down the dopamine and gives us the reward, which is another hormone called serotonin. So GABA is critical in that. If GABA is weak or suppressed, or dialed down, which is what it is during puberty, during that 10 years from the start of puberty to the early 20s, then you are more susceptible to reward turning into addiction. So addiction is simply reward received too many times, too frequently. Now, in mm. real life, rewards are very hard to receive very frequently because the kinds of rewards I'm talking about are things like, say, having sex. Now, you cannot have sex 100 times an hour, yeah, but so there's a natural limiter there mm. that, that stops that turning into an addiction. Rewarding, yes. Addictive, no. Um, and, and, and that's in general the case with the things we find rewarding, like eating, uh, having sex, um, and, and so on. However, we can create addictions by, uh, notably by taking chemicals, which change the amount of dopamine we get. So that instead of it being a natural reward um, that we're chasing naturally, um, yeah. we can imbibe chemicals like alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, um, uh, cocaine uh, that artificially boost that dopamine level and give us much more frequent hits. Now, in a child with a functioning GABA control system, addiction becomes less dangerous because the GABA will shut down those dopamine hits. And in an adult with a functioning GABA control system, it is much less dangerous too. But in that in-between phase, between the start of puberty and early 20s, when our GABA system is impaired or purposely shut down, um, we are much more susceptible to something which is merely rewarding becoming addictive. And so when you look at the stats on addiction, you'll find most people's addiction to most things start as teenagers. 
If you first experience something when you're in your 20s, you're less likely to be addicted to it. If you first experience something as a child, you're less likely to be addicted to it. The peak for addiction is commencing that thing during your teenage years. And that's simply because during those years, the control system that would stop us becoming addicted isn't working. So we've got these teenagers with the brakes taken off, um, very susceptible to addiction. And in the mm. background, we've got an environment that's changed and is offering some of these, you refer to them as pawns, yes. um, and in particular sort of danger porn, porn porn, and <laughs> approval porn, um, which operates uh, to sort of exacerbate that addictive tendency and is different for boys and girls. Yeah. So we've got a fairly unique environment. And, and this really sort of jumped out at me when I first started looking at, when I realised that the teenage years are uniquely, uh, you know, accessible to addictive behaviours and so on, I started looking at, well, what do we know? What are the stats on addictions? Uh, and, and I found a really interesting thing, which was that if you have a look at the statistics on traditional addictive behaviours, so teenage sex, alcoholism, uh, smoking, drug taking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you'll find that they've been going up and up and up since the early 90s, up and up and up and up, uh, until they hit about 2009, 2010. And then suddenly they, they go off a cliff. Uh, kids who became teenagers after 2010 are about half as likely to undertake any of those behaviours as kids who were teenagers before 2010. Now, that's pretty extraordinary. Mm. For decades, public health authorities have been trying to turn around those addiction numbers. And then suddenly, in around 2010, a miracle occurred and they turned around all on their own. That's, a, that's You don't see that sort of thing in public health statistics very often, where something that's admitted very, very bad, teenage addiction to anything, drugs, alcohol, nicotine, etc., suddenly, all on its own, completely throws itself into reverse. And something else has to be going on there. And violent crime as well, as I understand. From exactly. Yeah. So violent crime, all of the things that kids become addicted to you know, because they get a thrill out of it in the case of violence or risk, um, or because they find it rewarding in the case of drugs. Um, anything that required a teenager to be physically present to indulge in went off a cliff in about 2010. Um, and the reason for that is because we introduced a whole new sphere of addiction. Suddenly addiction was not for the adventurous few, the ones who could go out, obtain drugs or, or um, you know, do any of those other behaviours, suddenly addiction became available to everyone who could carry an internet-capable device in their pocket. Because in 2007, the iPhone was released and in 2011, the iPad was released. Now, interestingly, uh, when uh, Steve Jobs was interviewed about the release of the iPad in 2011 by the Wall Street Journal, uh, the journalist, just as the interview was finishing, that he'd been talking about what a fabulous, fabulous device this was. The journalist, as he was walking out, remembered that Steve had three teenage kids at the time uh, and turned around and said, oh, uh, your kids must think you're the greatest dad in the world uh, because you've got the very first iPad. And his response was, I wouldn't let my kids near this under any circumstances <laughs> whatsoever. 
because he knew what he'd invented. He knew that he'd invented a device with unlimited, unfettered access to highly addictive software. Now, people, when they first hear that, say to me, oh, you've got to be kidding. You know, software can't be addictive. Well, it can. And we know it can be. We know that drawing on a piece of paper can be addictive. So porn existed long before you could get on the internet and watch videos. Um, you know, porn existed, you know, in hand-drawn pictures and so on. And what those things are are simulations of the act of sex, which we find rewarding for very good evolutionary reasons. Mm. Simulations allow you to indulge or, or, or allow your biochemistry to indulge in a hit without the act itself. So we know that works for porn. And what's happened in the last 10 years is exactly that same process occurring for other things which we find inherently rewarding. So if we're female, we find, well, males and females find the company of other humans that like us rewarding. Uh, we get a, a hit of a hormone called oxytocin when we do something that other people like and they tell us. So one way to do that is to go out, um, do things in real life, meet people, do things that those people like and have them tell you that they like it. You will feel great. You will find it very, very rewarding. It helps us as a species work well together in that we are all motivated to do things that everybody else in our group likes. Um, so that is rewarding. Very, very hard to simulate uh, in the same way. You can't just draw a picture of that in the way you could with sexual porn. Um, so how do you simulate that? It took a while for the software industry to figure that one out, but they managed it. Uh, it's called social media. What that allows you to do is post something about yourself, a photograph, a story, something you enjoy, an opinion, um, and have other people instantaneously, thousands of other people instantaneously, tell you they like you because of what you posted by just clicking the like button. Um, that is a simulation of social approval, which is why I call it approval porn. In the same way that sex porn is a simulation of sex, social media is, is a simulation of social approval. Now, what's happened since 2010 is we've allowed people to put that high-speed simulator of something which is inherently rewarding when done slowly, um, but addictive when done quickly, into every pocket of every person on the planet. Now, girls are particularly susceptible to this because they are more responsive to oxytocin. Testosterone suppresses the effect of oxytocin, which is the thing that's providing the reward here. Um, so girls are extremely sensitive to this. Layer onto that being a teenage girl where the GABA brakes have been turned off and you have the perfect, perfect target for software that is designed to be addictive. Why is it designed to be addictive? because their business model doesn't make sense if it's not. Spend billions of dollars making software that you then give away for free, that's insane. Uh, it mm. only works if that giving it away for free means that you open a channel for advertisers directly to that user. Uh, and you manage to keep everybody else who's trying to do the same thing at bay. So that real estate on that phone desktop is very, very valuable. And keeping your app there is the job of addiction, which is why the programmers who write that stuff are called dopamine hackers, because their job is to make sure that teenage girl gets a dopamine hit every time she opens the app. Now, boys are not as responsive to that. To that. 
that they, they do like it, but they're not, it, it, isn't, it isn't as effective as on them because of the effect of dulling that testosterone does. What testosterone does also, though, is increase the desire for risk in boys. So boys actually find risk stimulating, much more stimulating than social engagement. So how do you do a simulator for risk? Well, you can do it the old-fashioned way, which is just gambling. Uh, gambling is a risk simulator. It's, it gives you exactly the same hormone hit as if you encountered real danger in real life. Um, there's a good reason for that. It's meant to sharpen you up and make you able to run away quicker. Um, uh, but if you want to simulate risk, then the easiest way to do it besides gambling is in a game that simulates putting your life at risk. Uh, which is what the gaming industry has done over the last 10 years. So I call gambling and gaming, uh, two areas which, by the way, are increasingly merging into one, mm. uh, I call that danger porn. And that's for the boys. That's to simulate high-speed simulation of risk. Rather than going out, putting yourself in a battle situation and risking your life 15 times a day, you can just do it from the comfort of your chair. Um, because you can do it at such high speed, it becomes a simulator in the same way that approval porn is a simulator or sexual porn is a simulator. So all of these things are now freely available, and they are all free, um, on every device in every teenager's pocket. It's no longer addiction for the adventurous few. It's addiction for everybody who has a device, which is everybody. That's the problem. We've now entered a phase where we are addicting an entire generation and we're about to find out what that means. I can make some predictions about what it means because one thing we know is that addiction leads inevitably to anxiety and depression. And we are seeing epidemic levels of anxiety and depression in teenagers. They are now twice as high as they were 10 years ago. And that's because we're getting many, many more teenagers into an addicted state. Worse than that, addiction leads, once you've set your brain up and it's a biochemical change to your brain being addicted, once you've set it up that way, you are much more easily addicted to anything, not just the thing that started the addiction. Now, I've probably gone way off track. There, so, <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, uh, feel free to ask questions. <laughs> I, I have many. So on the super highway to online addiction, our little teens need a vehicle yep. and they seem to be getting these vehicles in the form of, we call it a telephone, but in reality, it's a more powerful computer than put man on the phone. Well, the, the phone is the least used app on the thing. You, you, <laughs> yeah, could, de you right. could delete the phone app from that thing and no one would know or care. That's right. And then they go to school and they get tablets and computers as a vehicle to educate. Let me give you a, a little scenario, David. I'm very interested in how we separate online education from online addiction. My daughter was on her tablet and I had a suspicion that she was doing something in the social media domain, but with a quick control tab you can change application oh no yeah, they can, they can flip dad. the screen faster than you can blink <laughs> oh unbelievable so no no I'm, I'm studying dad so how do we separate online education and there are fantastic applications um in our devices that enable that from online addiction is there a fine line or is there a clear boundary no there's a very clear boundary 99 percent of the software on a device is is perfectly fine 
in fact, better than perfectly fine, is helping, is, you know, these devices are useful. It's just that there are a very, very small class of software types, social media, games, online gambling, see, it's as easy as that to say, hmm. very, very small subset that um, are dangerous for teenagers in general, but also particularly during this phase when they have impaired braking systems that make them liable for uh, addiction. So most of the stuff on a tablet is not dangerous at all. It's helpful. No one's getting addicted to, to Excel. You know, that's, um, it, 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 oh, I, I think there are some count, accountants that would back to differ. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, some people might find it really entertaining, but, but no one's getting addicted to it. And Everyone's addicted to PowerPoint, though. Oh, yeah. Stop that addiction. Right. Yeah, you're talking um, to two consultants, so yeah. We... <laughs> uh, yeah, so, it, you know, most of it is useful. I, I will be the last person to, to, to say, get rid of technology, it's a danger to all. That is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The, the, the baby in this, the useful bit of this, is devices that do useful things. What we've got to be really careful of, though, is that those devices can also carry extremely dangerous things. And that, unfortunately, is what parents have to be really, really all over. And at the moment, neither the manufacturers nor schools are doing anything to help. Um, they're simply saying, oh, there's not really a problem here. And one thing to be aware of here is that adults saying that really don't know what they're talking about. Because when adults were children, when today's adults were children, this software did not exist. Um, mm -hmm. They think the software that these kids are looking at is the software that they looked at when they were kids, which wasn't addictive. Uh, you know, it was just, it was software. Yeah, there were games, but you were playing against a computer. You were playing against an algorithm. You weren't playing against other humans, which layers in enormous levels of addictive capacity because suddenly uncertainty plays a role and that doubles the addictive capacity of a, of a, of a game. So, and then parents will say, well, you know, but I've tried the game and it's, yeah, it's nice to play it, but it's not that addictive once again. This is a parent with a fully formed, yes. activated GABA system controlling their ability to be addicted, comparing themselves to a teenager which has it turned off. So they don't know what these kids are experiencing uh, and they do tend to underestimate it. And lay it on top of that, most parents would really just rather that the kids were quiet. <laughs> and, and they know that if they try to take stuff away from them, like this, they will get a fight, um, which, by the way, is sign number one that they're talking about something addictive. You know, you don't get a fight if you try to take broccoli away from kids. Uh, you do get a fight if you try to take social media away from them. That tells you everything you need to know about addiction right there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just a few things. Unfortunately, those few things are easy to hide, are on every device, and are very hard to police. David, just staying on this vector for a second, what would you say to parents that might say something like, look, my kid doesn't watch TV for an hour. They mm. get their form of education for an hour watching TikTok or a YouTube video. And oh, by the way, that's the way they communicate with their friends. Mm. Mm. So, okay, a couple of things in there. When you watch TV, it's not watching you. Um, 
So, and that's a critical difference. Uh, when TikTok is, when you're watching something on TikTok or you're watching something on YouTube, uh, it's watching you. It knows how long you're looking at it. It knows what you're looking at. It knows whether you've got the volume up or on. Um, it knows uh, what you saw before it, what you saw after it. In fact, it knows everything you've ever looked at in your entire life. Uh, and it is using all of that information to decide what ad to show you next or what piece of content to show you next to keep you on the device. So that is a very big difference from watching something that's being broadcast. Once again, we find watching television mildly attractive, um, uh, depending on what the content is, but no one is going to say they're addicted to it. Um, whereas you can very easily become addicted to just endlessly streaming uh, things on YouTube, Netflix, or TikTok, because that stuff is not being randomly thrown at you. It is being very, very carefully curated by algorithms designed to exploit the way your brain works. Um, and, and that's an important difference. As for the communication thing, um, look, I, I hear that from a lot of parents. Uh, when, I, when I do public talks about this, that's the first thing that often people say is, uh, you know, my kid has to play Fortnite because otherwise he wouldn't be able to talk to his friends or this is the way they socialise, et cetera, et cetera. Um, frankly, that's nonsense. That's the excuse the kid gives them so that they can get more time on the, on the addiction. It's them fighting to keep time on the addiction. In other words, it's the addiction working. The reality is if you turn it off, they will, two things will happen. The first is they will become bored which, by the way, is a cardinal sin these days. We're not allowed to let kids mm -hmm. become bored. Um, but they will. They'll become bored. Uh, and they'll tell you, I'm bored, usually within about 30 seconds of you taking away the addictive thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then they will find something else to do. They will start to use their imagination. They might find a game to play. They might think about the fact that their friend only lives two houses away and maybe walk down and see them. You know, it's... The, the, don't buy into the excuses that the addict gives for being for maintaining access to the addiction. So this has led us beautifully to the the big question I've got, and this is about this concept of parenting. We, as you've described, have entered a brave new world, and I use that term very deliberately because it's almost a dystopian sort of future um, that we're we're finding ourselves in, and it's certainly unprecedented in terms of the challenges that contemporary parents are facing. But in your book, you talk about a, uh, a very early, about 116 years ago, a, a guy called, with the beautiful title, Adolescence, Its Psychology and Its Relations to Physiology, Anthropology, Sociology, Sex, Crime, Religion and Education. Um, <laughs> Everything. Yeah, 1,300 <laughs> pages of, of wonderful parenting advice. But it sounded like we had a better idea then about the, the sort of um, approaches to parenting that, that we should be employing now, but we lost our way somewhere over the last 100 years. Could you talk about some of the evolution of parenting theories and sort of where we, we need to be at the moment as parents in this generation? Yeah, um, it, it was an interesting book. That, that, that book pretty much nailed it. Um, it recognised that teenagers were different, um, their brains were different, their responses were different, they were more likely to become addicted, uh, they were more likely to have low impulse control, and it recognised that this was a phase that lasted from the start of puberty to the early 20s. Uh, it did all of that without any of the biochemistry. It, you know, the biochemistry was unknown at that point. This was just from people observing teenagers. Um, so it was quite interesting to to read that and think, yeah, 
Yep, that's all correct. <laughs> Nailed it. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of parenting, I, I mean, we've been through a number of waves of parenting. Um, there was the the wave in the 1940s of the uh, seen but not heard approach to parenting, you know, which was that uh, a child's place was to be quiet and be out of sight. Um, and, and then we progressed into uh, a sort of laissez-faire parenting in the, in the 60s and 70s, where it was sort of a, a backlash against that quite brutal methodology from the 40s, which, 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 which was really keeping kids in a closet until they're old enough to talk to. Um, uh, and uh, then what's happened since then is that it's it's devolved even further into uh what i would say is really permissive parenting uh, I and mean, a parent from today would look at the way they were parented in in the 70s and 80s and and consider it quite hardcore in comparison to the way they parent their kids now um it, it's been quite an evolution uh, and it's it's got to do i mean nobody knows for sure what it's got to do but i theorize in the book that it may well have to do with the fact that the structure of the family has changed quite significantly so after the second world war the average australian family had four children in the house um, they're all very close in age um, uh, one parent was was out working and the other parent was at home uh, running a household that required 50 plus hours of of personal labor a week to run um, and and kids needed to help um, uh, and couldn't be indulged to any great degree um, so they needed to do things when they were told to do them um, and needed to help out uh, and we transitioned to a, to a family structure now where you've got one and a half kids per household um, the amount of work required to run that household is now down at around 14 hours a week rather than well over 50 uh, and you you have both parents who are usually working outside the home and the last thing they want to do when they are inside the home is fight with their kids mm. um, so you have simultaneously um, kids less kids who receive more attention when they receive it um, and more favorable attention when they receive it and then a lot of not attention the rest of the time um, and it's led us to a place where um, parents don't have the stomach for saying no um, and they that evolves into a bit of a problem when you mix it in with kids the thing that you should be saying no to is something that is addictive um, so that's sort of at a very high level summary if, if you start to dig into the science and say okay well what does that look like? Have, have there been any studies on saying no? And there's, there's quite an interesting study that I, I um, look at in the book about uh, demand feeding. So this is this is feeding a child, you know, a baby, um, either when they want to be fed um, or feeding them to a schedule. So the olden way, if you went back to the uh, 50s and 60s, was because it was a busy household and kids had to fit in, uh, they were fed uh, on a schedule. So they were fed um, every three hours or whatever it was. Uh, and they stuck to that schedule because uh, the person running the home uh, didn't have the ability to just randomly drop everything and feed the child when it wanted to be fed. Um, so parents at, of that generation worked on the notion that kids learned to fit in, that they were told the rules, they stuck to the rules, and they got told no a lot. Um, whereas if we move forward to now, around... I think it's somewhere in the 90%, 90, 92% of, of children are demand fed. Um, now, 
that means that the child is fed when it wants to be fed. And, and, and that's the prevailing view of, of you know, medical experts is that that's a good thing for the child, et cetera. It's undoubtedly a good thing for the child, but is it a good thing for the parents? Because what it means is the parents essentially have to arrange their lives around the child and the child never really hears the word no. Now, the study I was talking about, uh, quite a large English study look, that looked at confidence in parenting skills from a very large group of both uh, parents who demand fed and parents who schedule fed. Uh, and they found that parents who schedule fed at the, ch age, the ch child at six months, at one year, at three years on follow-up, parents who schedule fed were 16 times, not twice, not three times, 16 times more confident in their parenting skills than parents who uh, demand fed. Uh, mm. And I guess where I take that in the book is, is I, I look at a, another further studies in relation to saying no. Um, and there's, there's quite a theme that develops, which is that um, parents who get used to saying no, and more importantly, kids who get used to hearing no, mm. um, often do a lot better with this once you get to the bit where the kid is being driven by hormones. Uh, and by a reward system and an addiction mechanism. So if a kid is used to you saying no to something when they're eight years old, they'll be a lot easier to deal with when you tell them no, they can't access social media when they're 14 years old. Um, it's a lot easier to tell a seven-year-old boy, no, he can't play video games, than it is to tell a 15-year-old boy who's bigger than you that he can't play video games. And if that's the first time that he's heard it from yeah. you. <laughs> Um, so that's that's where I go with the parenting thing in the book, which is to to look a little bit at this change. I mean, and laid over the top of that is the fact that frequently now, much worse than just not saying no, we are entering a phase where these devices are actually being used as sedatives. So that rather than taking a child to the supermarket with you and expecting them to behave um, while you do an important you know, do the shopping, an important task for the household, you sedate them by giving them a device, um, knowing that if you give them the device, they'll sit there happily playing on it while you can get on with what you need to do. Um, no parent would think it was okay to hand them a shot of Valium, um, but it, this, the device is effectively electronic Valium. David, before we leave babies, you say that babies learn very quickly how to yep. manipulate. And you talk about the controlled feeding, demand feeding, I should say. Controlled crying has always had some controversy. Yep. Um, we tried it in our house and we found mm. it was incredibly successful. In yep. um, You had one uncomfortable night's sleep and then yep. babies slept through. We've had friends that thought that was absolutely laughable but had their six-year-old getting up every night to sleep in their bed right. until they did it right. is it the same principle that it's not i mean i'm not saying that you can you can uh enforce discipline on babies that are too young but but put those controls in place in order to enforce some wiring that neuroplasticity that you talk about in the book well it, it's just learning uh, so the way we learn is our reward system teaches us. I mean, that's its purpose is to teach us things. It teaches us two things. It teaches us things that are good for us uh, and things that are bad for us. So it is the same system in play when we touch a hot stove. It hurts. Um, we suffer an injury. 
Um, but we learn very, very quickly that that's not something we should do. Um, same thing in play when we eat ice cream. It's really good, uh, tastes great. A reward system set embeds that and engraves that in our brain and says, that's a good thing, remember that for next time. Um, so it, it's our accelerated learning system. We can learn things in theory from a book, but we'll learn things much faster if we try them. Um, and certainly as babies, pre-verbal, uh, you know, they're learning from the second they're born. They are building the world's most complex neural network and it has to take into account everything about its environment. Now, uh, it's one of the things it really, really likes uh, is the company of its parents. It gets a huge oxytocin surge from doing that, finds it extraordinarily rewarding to get to be picked up and be given a good cuddle. So obviously you can't blame a baby that figures out very quickly on that the way to make that happen is to cry in the middle of the night um, from doing it. I mean, it's the reward system at work, just as much as if you'd, you know, placed a plate of ice cream down in front of a teenager. It's, it's, the, it's the way it's designed to work. Um, now, if you don't want that to happen, you have to not allow that reward system to embed that response, um, which is what you're describing as controlled crying, which is very, very quickly, very quickly, because they learn very quickly, a child will learn that crying does not get anything other than a visit from their parent, <laughs> which is what the controlled, controlled crying system does. It, you know, you go in, you, you settle them down again and you leave, but you certainly don't pick them up uh, and, and give them a cuddle, which is the reward. Um, so the, it's just a teaching mechanism. And as you say, it's very effective. It worked on all of our kids. Um, our first kid almost killed us because we hmm. didn't know this. Um, um, but six months in with us both almost, you know, expired from sleep exhaustion, uh, we tried it. And as you say, a night or two later, it was fixed um, because all we did was change that reward system so that the child learned very quickly, this does not get me a reward. Um, and people hear that think, oh, children aren't that manipulative. Uh, on the contrary, I mean, the book I wrote about psychopaths shows us that the brain biochemistry doesn't mature past psychopathy until the age of four. So hmm. the, the short way of saying that is all babies are psychopaths, meaning <laughs> they don't care about you, they care about them, which is the way you want it to be because they've got to learn. Um, uh, and then at, by the age of four, their brain matures to a point where they develop empathy circuits, which allow them to contemplate whether this affects you or not. But expecting a baby to care about whether you get a good night's sleep, you're delusional. So let's bring it back to teenagers. Assuming we've missed the trick with demand feeding, assuming we haven't told the seven-year-old uh, or set the the appropriate rules, um, you you mentioned in your book it's it's never too late to start. And I love the fact you use the term rules rather than boundaries or any of these sort of things. Can you talk to us about rules and about maybe some practical tips for actually setting and enforcing them on runaway teenagers? Okay, so um, look, it's never too late to start. It is going to be harder the later you start. And if you wait until they are a teenager, it's going to be the hardest of all. That does not mean it's impossible. It just means you have to go at it a bit harder. Um, so, um, 
the I, I read a book a long time ago. I've forgotten the, the name of the lady who wrote it, but she she was talking about boys, and she said, um, you know, it, when they're when they're kids, you need to have you need to have um, boundaries. Uh, when they're ten, you need to build fences on those boundaries, uh, and when they're teenagers, you need to run the national grid. Um, I think that's Celia Lashley. <laughs> Celia Lashley. Um, yes, that's the one. Yes, yeah, um, boys to terrific book. Terrific yeah. book. Um, and it, it's um, that nothing could be could be said more true about teenagers, and not just boys, but girls as well. Which is uh, now boys will push back physically against boundaries. Girls will push back emotionally, but it doesn't mean that it's any less difficult to deal with. Um, so. Uh, Yes, any you can start anytime you want, but the the critical thing is have rules and enforce them consistently. There is no point having a rule you only enforce every now and then. There's no point having a rule which is negotiable because all you are telling the child is, I can debate this rule, I can fight about this rule, I can get this rule changed at times. You need the rule, if you're going to set a rule, it has to be enforced, which is if you say your bedtime is 9.30, your bedtime is 9.30. There is never a negotiation about that. There is, no matter how much screaming about it goes on, no matter how much fighting about it goes on, it is still always that case. And every time you back off that, you set yourself back in terms of dealing with that. Every time you stick to it, the next time it's easier to enforce because every single instance of this, just as with control crying, every time you stick to your guns, the reward system says, okay, that's the rule, that's the boundary, that's where I have to stop. Um, and it's really just that simple. It's really just about setting rules and sticking to them. Now, I do go into a little bit of nuance about rules, which is, you know, there's quite a bit of theory about rules and um, you have to be careful that they are not insane that they are not unreasonable uh, and that they match the circumstances but once you set that rule you do have to stick to it and you cannot be negotiated out of it and if you do have to change it because of whatever circumstance there has to be a really good reason for changing it that the person that the kid and you understand that this is an exception and this is why it's an exception and this will only happen this once mm. david you talked earlier about permissive parenting and there's a line in your book, Team Brain, that I love. Uh, quote, parents need to harden up to save yes. their kids. Yes. I was looking at this and I was thinking you could turn this into a military-style mission which breaks down <laughs> into two parts. The first part is task and the second part is purpose. The task yes. being harden up, yes. the purpose being to save your kids. Yes. Can you talk about those two things, hardening parents up? Well, the harden up is, is just the thing I was talking about before, which is that you, you, saying no is not easy. I'm making it sound like it's easy. It is not easy. Anyone who's ever been a parent at all uh, knows saying no is the hardest thing in the world to do because often you want, I mean, you want the best for your child. You want your child to be happy. The last thing in the world you want to do is do something that will make them unhappy. Um, and, and often saying no is exactly that. Uh, if you've said to them, uh, you will not be using social media, they will fight against you. They will be very unhappy. You will have tears, you will have anger, you will have pushback. So parents don't want to do that. It's, it's the opposite of a good thing from a parent's perspective. It's certainly not fun, but you do have to do it. And you have to do it not for you, 
And you certainly won't be appreciated by them for doing it at the moment that you do it. But you are doing something for them. You are teaching them that it is better for them to not do this. And I find that with kids, as long as you can explain why, it goes a lot easier. What kids don't appreciate is random hard rules with no explanation. But if you can say to them, I don't want you to do this because it is addictive and I don't like you when you're addicted, um, then mm. that goes a long way to making it easier. They still won't love you for it at that point. But when they are living a life without addiction, they will love you for it. This, this very much echoes, we spoke with Steve Biddle for a couple of weeks ago and, and he, he spoke about having these same sort of rules in particular about devices in bedrooms and turn-off times and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, under no circumstances should a, should a teenager have a device in a bedroom. Yeah. And, uh, I don't care. They could be the most trustworthy teenager in the world, um, should never be in a bedroom. In fact, should not have personal alone time access to a device. One of the biggest problems with these devices is their portability. Mm. Um, it isn't that long ago that in order to use a computer, it, you had to, you know, go to a place in a, usually a communal room in the house, you know, a lounge room or something where the thing was attached to a wall. Um, Boot it up. Uh, you know, there was no sneaking off. If you wanted to look at porn, you were doing it in the living room with your family, you know, wandering around. Which is just <laughs> plain just, weird. Yeah. <laughs> which just wouldn't be happening, right? And so that in its own is a control mechanism. The power of it, the way addiction works is the number of hits um, so the opportunity is part of the addictive mechanism. The number of times you can do something, the number of times you can access something, the number of times you can play a game, the number of times you can access porn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all part of the addictive mechanism. So simply limiting that is going a long way towards stopping it. Uh, so taking it out, you will not completely eliminate it. You cannot be watching your kids 24 hours a day. They will access their school delivered iPad on the bus on the way to school and they will do stuff you wouldn't want them to do. But if you eliminate 80% of their access, you are going a long way towards stopping that addictive mechanism. And an important component about rule setting that you speak about is the idea of consequences. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm really interested in the, the sort of debate, in particular about corporal punishment. Um, there's a lot of sort of 50s dad wouldn't tolerate that and a, a good smack has sort this sort of thing out. Be interested in your thoughts on that, um, but then consequences more broadly. Well, yeah, so consequences, um, there has to be a consequence for breaking a rule or otherwise it's not a rule. It's a suggestion. Um, you know, if you say you have to be in bed by 9.30, there has to be or an or what, or else the kid just hears, well, they're banging on about 9.30 again. Mm. Uh, you know, it has to be, and if you aren't, then there will be these consequences. Now, some things have natural consequences. You know, touching a hot stove has a natural consequence. You don't need to make a rule about don't touch hot stoves because you'll get burnt. Um, because you try it, if you try it, there's a natural consequence, which is a more severe punishment than anything you could imagine. Um, so... I'm not suggesting you run around letting kids touch hot stoves, but it's an example of a natural consequence. Um, some things don't have natural consequences. A 9.30 bedtime doesn't have a natural consequence, um, so you have to invent one and you have to ensure that it's enforced. So that consequence has to be often uh, removing something of value to the child. 
um, something that you know the child values has to be limited or removed as a result of a failure to comply with that rule. That's the most effective way to do it. Now, the question of, of corporal punishment, um, yes and no. I mean, there's a school of thought that says it encourages domestic violence. I'm, I'm not of that school of thought. Um, I, I don't see any evidence that that is the case. Um, uh, that being said, um, you don't, it, it's an unintelligent way to enforce a consequence. Um, uh, it's, it's effective short run communication of a consequence. It's a simulation of the consequence that you get when you touch a hot stove. If you tap their hand or, or smack their hand away, then they feel pain. They understand that's something they shouldn't have done, etc. And so that's where the idea comes from. Um, but it wouldn't take much thought, particularly when you're talking about an older child, to, to move on from that and say, okay, well, this kid's old enough to understand that this is something where a rule is being broken and there needs to be a consequence. Um, so uh, I, I guess you could call that sitting on the fence a bit on, cor on corporal punishment. It's horses for courses. Um, uh, it's about how old is the kid, how severe is the punishment, um, and is its purpose merely to show that there is a consequence for breaking a rule? Um, you know, if, if the answer to that last one is no, then it shouldn't be being done. David, what are your thoughts on rite of passage events where we get our teens out of the house into a group, a sense of community to interact and do something difficult but ultimately rewarding? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with challenging people to achieve things. Um, uh, and there's inevitably danger to that. What, what the parents in the room have got to do is control the level of risk associated with it. I mean, th that's the control mechanism, which is you have to have a situation where you know what the level of risk is involved in whatever it is that they want to do and that you're satisfied that it's under control. Um, but teenagers will push boundaries. It's the nature of being a teenager. One of the consequences, particularly in boys, of having amped up testosterone, and, and, and teenage boys have more testosterone than anybody on the planet, uh, it peaks during the teenage years and, and drops off thereafter. Bad news, boys, you, you've got more testosterone today than you have mm. tomorrow. Um, it, it's that thing that, that testosterone does. I mean, in fact, the, sorry to go off on a bit of a tangent here, but, but the reason women bothered to invent men um, was to have a high, uh, sorry, the four-wheel drive version of humans. Uh, hmm. Males are the four-wheel drive version of females, which is the female basic biochemistry with a layer of testosterone added so that it does dangerous things and has impaired impulse control. Um it, it, it is the way evolution works um, with the male-female biochemistry. So you end up with a, a subset of human species, which is the males, which are designed from a hormone perspective to take risks. Um, and that means that they'll want to take risks, that they'll push the boundaries, they will do things that any normal adult would say is dangerous. Um, that any normal child would say is dangerous and that any teenage female would say is dangerous. Um, and the job of the adults 
who are capable of taking a rational assessment of the risk involved is to control that risk um, because they are simply not capable of doing it themselves. The biochemistry is fighting on every front there. It is saying there is nothing wrong with this to the teenage male um, where everybody else can see there's very much something wrong with it. So the, the job of the everybody else is to make sure the risks are controlled. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it as risks are controlled. David's book, Team Brain, is published by Pan Macmillan, and it is an exceptional read. You'll read it in one sitting. We've both read it and, and enjoyed it thoroughly. Uh, David Gillespie, thanks very much for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. But before we let you go, can we also mm-hmm. find out how we find out more about you? Oh, uh, so probably, I mean, I, I have a presence on Facebook. Just look for David Gillespie. Uh, but I also have a website, davidgillespie.org, um, uh, which is .org. Uh, so, yeah, that's the best way to... But if you want me to respond to, you know, if you want to ask a question or want me to respond, the best way to do it is via Facebook. David Gillespie, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.